Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Final Furlong Podcast is brought to you in association with AtTheRaces.com, the ultimate resource for racing fans. Thanks for downloading the Final Furlong Podcast. I'm Imish Kennedy, joined by Daily Racing Forms' Peter T. For Natal, welcome back to the show, my friend. Great to be here. Huge weekend of racing and very fun to talk about it with you. Yeah, we got a lot of talking points here from the 2000 and 1000 guineas and, of course, the Kentucky Derby. I did joke on Friday's podcast with Lydia Hislop that uh, you and Rich Ritchie have never been seen in the same place at the same time. <laughs> and given your affinity for Tweed, maybe you are one and the same. And then you decided to tweet out a picture of what you were wearing on Kentucky Derby Day. And it was not appropriate for the weather that was there. For those who didn't see it, tell us what you were decked out in. Oh, fantastic. I had, uh, it, I, to be fair, this was not like a fashion statement. This was like, what are the clothes I can put on the quickest because I've, I've been working too hard all week and I've got to get to this party and then get back to this other party. So basically, we ended up with an Aloha shirt, uh, yoga pants, trainers, and a uh, what you might call a cowboy hat. It was quite an ensemble. It caused quite a stir on Twitter. It did. It, it did indeed. You do realize that when you come over for Royal Ascot, if you even attempt to look at the race course in that outfit, somebody, a, a lovely gentleman, will come up to you and say, "Excuse me, sir. Would you please leave without making a fuss?" You know, you're not. You might get 160,000 people in Churchill Downs, but we're not getting away with that at Epsom or at Royal Ascot. Just so you know. I know, I know. I'm well aware of the rules. I, I wouldn't have even set foot in an American race course in, in that garb, but it was fine. You know, I just went to a little uh, derby party on a roof in Brooklyn. I fit right in. Oh, that's all right. That's okay. Sorry, for, for a second there, I thought you were actually in Churchill Downs getting drenched uh, in that <laughs> outfit. So no, that's okay. Uh, before we get to the fantastic racing that we saw at Churchill Downs and other races over the weekend, it wasn't pleasant viewing for many with the slop, but it was an impressive performance from a horse you talked up on the podcast and justified. Uh, but first of all, we have to talk about uh, the 2000 and 1000 guineas. And it's a case of a powerhouse victory. And I don't know if you can call Richard Hannon one for the little guy. That's very patronizing to him. Uh, but what you can certainly say is that it's a horse that's owned by a syndicate. And so in that regard... Uh, one for the little guy in Bilsenbrook. But let's first of all get to Saxon Warrior, uh, a very important horse in the long term for Coolmore because they've made no secret of it, the fact that they want an outcross to Galileo. Um, and they definitely have one now. Uh, whatever else Saxon Warrior does in his career, his place at Coolmore is assured. He's by deep impact out of one of Coolmore's top mares. Um, and... This was a very important victory. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a number of things. She, he's out of Maybe, who was a really top-class race, uh, race mayor for, for Aidan O'Brien. But I think there's a couple of very interesting things here. The quotes from Aidan O'Brien beforehand were that he's 
developed into a monster over the winter, but he was also emphasizing that he would come on for the run. If he comes on from this, then he genuinely is going to be a monster. You can see where uh, Aiden's talking potential triple crown for the horse based on how much he should be expected to improve. And I think you're right that the biggest and most interesting story to come out of it is the breeding angle. I, I wouldn't call myself a breeding expert, but I'm fascinated in that end of the business and had been hearing Kevin talk on this very show about how much they want to get that deep impact Sunday silence blood as a cross for all those, uh, the, the Galileo mares, uh, Dane Hill, etc. cetera. Mm. And suddenly this horse is just so incredibly valuable on that side of the operation as well. Could end up being a horse that really goes down in the history of that storied breeding operation based on uh, what he's accomplished already and what we might see from here and the improvement that I know I expected. I of that that story about better, longer, and and uh, maybe better with the run that make perfect sense to me going into the race and and makes a lot more sense coming out. Yeah, they weren't saying he couldn't win it, and I was taken by. It's interesting when you can just look back at quotes. Anne-Marie O'Brien was asked, Saxon Warrior is a very significant horse for a number of reasons. First of all, he's the one who equaled Bobby Frankel, the late Bobby Frankel's record of 25 group of grade one wins in a season uh, on Racing Post Trophy days. So first of all, he's a history maker for Aidan O'Brien in that regard. He's also his 300th uh, group or grade one winner as well, which considering the man is 47... 48 years of age that is just insane to think that he has managed to achieve that already and i can't imagine aiden o'brien is going to retire anytime soon so by the time he retires uh, the records that he will leave in his wake are going to take some stopping um but in, in terms of saxon warrior they were talking about him on racing post trophy day as being a guinea's horse and this is a, a route that we've seen them go down before. Camelot obviously did the double of the Guineas and the, and the Derby. Australia ran a fine race uh, only to be beaten in the Guineas, not far, and then would go on and, and win an Epsom Derby. But the fact that he's a Group 1 winning juvenile and now a Group 1 winner of a classic over a mile really does make him invaluable. And the way he finished the race out, because Donica was saying he thought he'd, he'd gone there a little bit early, that he thought he'd, he'd gone too soon. But there's no reason to think that he won't stay. I'm not entirely sure that even money for the Derby is something I want to be jumping at because a mile forward Epsom might be something different. But certainly 10 furlongs won't be an issue. And I think as the season goes on, like he was carrying plenty of condition in the parade ring as well. So maybe a mile four is going to be absolutely ideal for him. And if that's the case, then he could take an awful lot of stopping in, in the Derby. My co-host on my show, the DRF Players Podcast, Jonathan Kinchin, likes to say, I don't think I want to be cutting in line to bet at the season <laughs> for the Derby. But you can see it. Uh, I wouldn't be in a hurry to be laying it. Obviously, so much is going to change between now and then based on the other trials. But it's not, uh, it, it's not a price to get excited about uh, necessarily, but it, but it doesn't 
it doesn't uh, question, it doesn't make you, it's not too crazy to be believed either. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, we are going to see derby trials at Chester this week, which uh, tend to be quite significant, particularly from the O'Brien team. We have the Dante still to come, which is a very significant derby trial. And we have the Darrenstown stud derby trial to come as well. So there's an awful lot of pieces of the puzzle still to be there. Um, you can't help but get a little bit carried away when you see a performance like this from Saxon Warrior. In terms of, of your viewpoint on him, how exciting a horse do you see him being for the rest of the season? I mean, it certainly seems like, from a, from a USA point of view, uh, one of the real stories to watch, absolutely. When you see the kind of talent that he's already shown with the ability that he could get better... And Americans love a good narrative. The Triple Crown narrative could be really fun and take a hold here as well. I just don't see it. It looks like all blue sky from here. Now, we know how that can change in this game overnight. Uh, so I'll, I'll knock when I say it, but I'm looking forward very much to seeing what comes next. Yeah, it is worth bearing in mind that Churchill obviously looked to be absolutely phenomenal in the 2000 guineas he looked really good in the irish 2000 guineas and then it went badly wrong but i, I suspect saxon warrior is a slightly different prospect um michael Tabor was was talking afterwards about just what a special horse this he thinks this is but also what an incredible trainer aiden o'brien is and obviously he was there in kentucky uh, this is the second time that one of his sons has partnered a classic winner for him. Uh, obviously, Joseph was a, a terrifically talented jockey. Dunica has now won a classic as well. Uh, from the worldwide perspective of, of Aidan O'Brien, the fact that he is a trainer who is clearly the very best at what he does uh, and, and just dominates worldwide, but that the family are such an important and integral part of it as well. How does that... I remember they were calling it when St. Nicholas Abbey won the Breeders' Cup Turf, they were calling it Father's Day uh, on NBC. Um, what's the, the American reaction to the father and son again teaming up and, and son Joseph uh, on saddling duty uh, for Aidan O'Brien, seeing as he was in Kentucky and, and, he, and him running to go and celebrate with Dunica? Um, how does that story develop in the States? Oh, it was a f another fabulous narrative, and it really does seem like a family affair. And uh, like to also just point out that the, it was the ride was fantastic too. Yeah. So yeah. This isn't just a, someone who's there by dint of uh, of uh, being born in the right place, uh, road like uh, road like it's what he's born to do. And I think those the, the family narratives are irresistible. You'll see some of them here in USA racing, but it's, it just, it captures, uh, it, it definitely captures a certain segment of racing fans uh, imagination when they can see truly such uh, world-class success in, in a family context. So the triple crown was mentioned, um, afterwards. I look back at Camelot's days and I, I can't help but feel that one of the reasons why they were so... Now, maybe they, they genuinely wanted the Triple Crown. Maybe they did. But I got the feeling that the St. Ledger was being talked about for Camelot because, well, this is convenient. We won't have to take on Frankel because Frankel right. isn't going to be running in that race. So if we talk about going for the Triple Crown, then we don't have to take on this, this mighty beast. 
and and they almost got away with it too if it hadn't been for a certain Mohammed El Zarouni. They would have they would have completed the triple crown. Do you think that is what they want to do? That 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 they genuinely want to go for for the triple crown, which hasn't been done in such a long time, and was last done by Vincent O'Brien, um, the former master of Valley Doyle, or given its prestige, would the arc not be more a likely contender? It feels, again, my, my view from afar, it feels like certainly part of the reason the Triple Crown hasn't been attempted, uh, or hasn't been won slash attempted, is the idea that the, the arc is the real third leg of the Triple Crown and the best horses circle that on the calendar. So it is, it is unusual in that regard, do you know the timing of those two races this year, Emma? Is it possible to have both on the dance card, or, or is it a one or the other situation? I, I think you can, but the record of a horse who even lines up in the St. Ledger and goes for the Archie is horrible. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that's something to consider. It is unusual, given that that's the bigger target, the most important race in flat racing in the world, that that wouldn't be, uh, that that, that that wouldn't be the front and center thing. However, from a marketing point of view, we've already talked about, you know, how important Saxon Warrior is, not just uh, today and tomorrow, but who knows, maybe from a marketing point of view, they think it could potentially be an easier race that would still, because it hasn't been done in so long, uh, confer a sort of um, marketing status on his future as a stallion. Now, that's just me talking out of my hat, but it's possible that, that those sort of thoughts are, uh, are what's at play, but... I'll say this, I trust this team to make the right decisions and do what's right, not just by the horse, but also what's right for business. I remember talking to somebody at Coolmore oh, a decade ago, and they were saying that if the second a horse enters the gate in the St. Ledger, immediately devalued. And you see an awful lot of the horses who have run in that race end up being National Hunt Stallions. That being said... Camelot ran in the St. Ledger, obviously, and, and then had a terrible four-year-old campaign after um, battling Colic. And he's very, very popular at Stud. I wonder if they genuinely do want to go for the Triple Crown, if they want to reignite that passion and that interest for the Triple Crown like it was back in, in the day. And also, is there a change in the breeding mindset, in, in the breeder's mindset, that... It is. It has become an awful lot about speed. Like we saw the French Derby reduced from a mile four to ten furlongs uh, a number of years ago, as the French authorities decided, look, we want to go this way because we think that's what it's all about now. We think it's all about speed. But stamina can be an attractive part to a, a stallion prospect as well. And at the end of the day, you know, when you're talking about Cheltenham, you're talking about what a horse is going to do in its novice year and and what it what its potential will be over fences. But but these horses. Like I'm, I'm thrilled and excited to see what Saxon Warrior can do in something like an Irish Champion Stakes, for example, which could be a red hot race this year. Um, but I just wonder if the breeding mindset has now changed. Um, like the, the Breeders' Cup Marathon, for example, has been dropped from the Breeders' Cup main event. I think it's still there, but it's on the very much on the undercard now. So is there a a mindset change? Do you think amongst breeders and, and amongst owners that actually yeah I, I don't have a problem with going for a horse who's got bags of stamina i think there's two different things at play one is the idea of specifically this horse saxon warrior with a with a guineas win on the cv 
what it means for him to win a race like the say ledger, I think is very different than a horse who couldn't get it done or hadn't shown speed in abundance doing it. I feel mm. like the anti-marketing comes into effect a lot more with a certain type of horse as opposed to a horse that's already had the accomplishments of Saxon Warrior. And as for the breeding market and their attitudes, yeah, I mean, the Belmont Stakes would be the example here. It, it, and it's a very similar deal where there are prejudices. There are those who, who think of it, uh, I'm not going to say it's not a positive to win, a grade one race, one of the, the most storied races in America, but it doesn't mean for breeding what winning a lot of other races means because of that sort of prejudice against, it's sort of weird to say, but prejudice against stamina. But I'll also say this, the breeding market, from what I've known, like I said, not an expert in this area, but just like you see weird, fickle trends in the betting markets, there are weird, fickle trends in the stallion markets. Mm. And I think when the right horse uh, accomplishes the Triple Crown or the right horse wins the St. Ledger in the right way, you'll see a lot of people picking up their heads and, and, and maybe looking at the situation a little bit differently. Just briefly on the Belmont, because this really fascinates me. The first time I, I became aware of that, I, that negative idea of the Belmont um, was when Rags to Riches won the race and beat Curlin. And I remember that there were a number of U.S. experts were then slamming Curlin and essentially saying, oh, well, he's no good because he's been beaten by a filly. I remember thinking, what are you on about? What are you, like, she's a Kentucky Oaks winner who's, who's like, bolted up in that race. Um, and, and the, like, I would have thought the story would be, oh, this is amazing. Like, it's an Irish-owned, uh, Irish-UK-owned horse who's trained in the States wins the Belmont, the first filly to do it in since the 1920s, first ever filly to win it at the distance, and gets the better of a Preakness winner in, in Curlin. And yet the, there was a number of handicappers coming out saying, ah, oh, well, Curlin mustn't be that good if he got beaten by a filly. Like, is that attitude still there in the States? I don't think so. Uh, that was right before sort of ushered in almost a golden age in the last uh, in the last bunch of years. Um, oh no, I'm getting my timing wrong. It was in the midst of a golden age, we'll say. Well, we where got, you had we got Rachel Alexandra and um, Zenyatta. Zenyatta, yeah. And, and I mean, I think that I do feel like at a certain time in the sport, the the sexes were separated enough that there was a little bit of a prejudice. It's not like over there where you you see three year old fillies even having great success at the top level. So I do think there are some that had a, a knee jerk, dare I say, almost sexist reaction to it but i mean if you watch that race it's an absurd opinion to say that curlin lost anything in it he uh, ran a blinder and just got beat by one who's better on the day and here's something i think that unites horse players no matter what country in the world great group of people i, I don't mean to be too insulting but they've been known to talk some nonsense from time to time and, and we're gonna put that one we're gonna put that one in that category I like it. I like it. Because that's just not the attitude over here. Like, if a Colt got beaten by a filly, we wouldn't be like, oh, oh, golly gosh, you know, he, he must be useless. Like, that, that's just not our thinking. And, and the celebration of a horse like Enabel, for example, uh, or Zarkava, and how excited we get about, about those horses when they perform really well, minding, uh, as another example. It just, it, it astonished me that that was the U.S. attitude. Um, Gustav Klimt. I do think it's changed some. Found another one who I think yes, has changed. Yes, of course. Yeah. We've seen just so many examples of, of, of terrific 
uh, fillies and mares on the racetrack here. I think that's a an old attitude that's uh, fortunately dying out. Good. Uh, and long may it continue. No more Harvey Weinstein nonsense. Uh, Gustav Klimth, who got who got thrown out of a bar the other day. Did you see that? Somebody grabbed him by the neck and threw him out of a bu- of a bar. Delighted for him. Absolutely delighted for him. What a jerk. Uh, no, right. Just- Gustav Klimt was the supposed, uh, certainly he was the market choice in terms of the Coolmore horses. Um, he drifted like a barge, though, in the morning, and it ended up then that Saxon Warrior went off the shorter price of the two. Um, is this as good as he is, do you think, Peter? Or or is there possibly more to come from him? Is there the potential for the bounce factor there with him? It's hard to say. I guess you could argue that that prep race was so the between the ground and the effort was so hard that you would actually regress instead of moving forward. Like I think many were envisioning heading into the race. I, I hate to be wishy washy, but I feel like it's just too early to tell. I think there's there was too much promise there uh, to to give up and. What would you think? Irish guineas next and, and, and maybe a shot to bounce back. And if forgotten in the betting, um, a horse that you could maybe end up having interest in. Hard to bet with a lot of confidence off the back of that, though. Yeah, big time. He, he kind of reminds me a bit of Master Craftsman, who was beaten in this race and then came out and won the Irish 2000 guineas and, and the St. James's Palestics. I wonder if, if um, well, I suspect the Irish 2000 Guineas will very much be on his agenda. There's a horse gone to Coolmore called, well, I think he was always in Coolmore ownership, but he's transferred to Aidan O'Brien called St. Patrick's Day. Um, who's a, is he a half or a full brother to American Pharaoh? American Pharaoh, yeah. And um, gone from Bob Baffett to Aidan O'Brien, and the talk with him is St. James's Palestakes at Royal Ascot. Wow, um, cool. Yeah, so uh, obviously he's going to have to start off somewhere. I wonder if the Irish Guineas could be on his agenda as well. But the right the right noises are being made about him. But um, I would be willing to forgive Gustav Klimt this performance. But at the same time, I wouldn't be rushing to go and back him next. Um, Kevin started this joke about Sheikh Mohammed and the boys up and down the lines, backing their horses. <laughs> And they really went for it over the weekend. They were up and down the lines with a big gamble on Massar. And the same in the 1,000 guineas. Uh, he's run well, but just not well enough. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't uh, build on the promise that we'd seen before. And I didn't really see uh, I didn't really see a trip, what we'd call a trip reason why. I have to say, you typically, when you see uh, a horse that appears to be laid out, everything looks perfect. The journey is perfect, and they're just a little flat. That's typically a horse you want to take on the next time. Mm. And, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to say that just because I've liked him so much. You know, he ran so well with horrible trouble in the Breeders' Cup, so eye-catching in the prep run. It was obviously the horse I selected for the race, but, but this is one I, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the one thing I'll, I'd say, and I understand looking at the pedigree doesn't support this idea, but just going back and, and re-watching the last two races almost seemed like a truly run mile was too much and, and a horse that might want to cut back, not the stretch out that I think he's going to get. Now, you know, there could be a lot of other things at play here, but but I, I just don't know what to make of him, and I'm feeling a little negative going forward. Yeah. Are you suggesting, so, that the jersey stakes at Royal Ascot, something over seven furlongs would be better for him? Because I'm amazed that he's going to be aimed at the derby, and that is his target now, apparently. 
Yeah, that, that is what just watching, put the pedigree aside. The pedigree information does make me think, okay, well, this horse should want to run longer. But just watching the tapes, I, I think shorter feels correct. Mm. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with you on that. Um, and Godolphin have, have, of course, done very well in the Jersey Sticks over the years. Uh, Alarcam, beautifully bred by Frankel out of the fantastic attraction. Uh, I think Mark Johnston wanted to, to look at the sectional times to see if, if that would give him a boost. And um, friend of the podcast, Simon Rowlands, tweeted, I've got some bad news for you, Mark. Uh, <laughs> it, it was first run of the season for him. But then again, Mark Johnston's horses are, are tend to be ready to go straight away. So maybe he can be forgiven this run. But at the same time, he's not beaten a huge amount. But at the same time, that may very well be as good as he is, too. If you want to believe, I think you could look. There, there was a little bit of greenness there that did suggest that that maybe more maturity, just in the form of time and uh, and Johnson's training, could put the horse right. But another who I'm not super excited about uh, to wager on the next day, but certainly one that you know you wouldn't want to give up. Uh, but it seems like the there was a lot of hype surrounding and uh, justified based on what we'd seen before but it's a little bit little looks a little bit tricky going forward potentially mm. tip to win ran an absolute stormer he had picked up a hundred and five thousand pounds sterling in qatar on his previous start forty six thousand uh, on the start prior to that and spent his summer in qatar although not everybody wants to do that um <clears throat> but he's run an absolute storming race uh, the son of Dark Angel for Roger Teal. He's a, a small operation. David Probert gave him a great ride. And uh, apparently he, he turned to Matt Chapman. Well, not apparently. He said it. He turned to Matt Chapman and said, did I just finish second in the guineas? To which Chapman, <laughs> to which Chapman replied, I have no idea. And walked <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> um, so he was, he was a bit taken aback. But it, it really was a, a fine performance from him. Uh, I can't remember if it was you or Lydia who talked him up, but, but but somebody on the podcast talked him up. Forgive me, uh, my back is not well and I'm distracted, but um, he ran an absolute stormer and congratulations to Connections. Speaking of uh, one for the little guy, you know, Richard Hannon is far from the little guy. He's a top trainer, but Lawrence, Happily, Wild Illusion, Alton Order, Soliloquy, that all makes sense, but Bilsden Brook finishing a length and three quarters in front of them all is like, what is going on? A fantastic ride from Sean Levy who gets his first classic. Um, Richard Hannon was talking about playing himself down afterwards, saying nobody cheers on my Guineas winners because nobody ever backs them. But <laughs> it was, um, she's the biggest price winner of the 1,000 Guineas ever. And to be fair, she did it very, very well. Yeah, if you look at, if you look at those other... Guineas winners from Hannon. Maybe that's where you can start to make a little bit of sense of it, given how much they did improve for having a trial. But I'm not saying I could make sense of. Uh, I'm not saying I could make sense of this one. There's. It's always easy after the race to go back and find something. And when you do look at the the runs from last year, particularly the the Goodwood run with all the trouble, you can see there's talent here. Hmm. Uh, very hard to find off the off the last two races but i mean for for all the world uh, just just watching it and on, 
on the clock. It looked legitimate. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see uh, what they decide to do from here. Eight runs as a juvenile, including a nursery handicap. Uh, she finished behind Sizzling and Lawrence at Doncaster. She finished behind Soliloquy on her seasonal reappearance, and yet she beats all of them in the 1,000 guineas. It, it really was a, a terrific ride from Sean Levy, and, and congratulations to the connections. Um, they were genuinely shocked to the point that they didn't seem to be willing to come up with and next we're off to Royal Ascot. Like they, they don't really seem to know what it is they're going to do with her next. I don't think there was a plan. I think it was a case of right. In fact, I remember somebody saying, oh, it's a nice day out for their owners. It's a nice day out for her owners. It's a really nice day out for her owners when she goes and wins um, for the, uh, the, the Paul Mal Partners and Partners. Partners and partners. Uh, so congratulations to them. Uh, she is nicely bred by Champs-Élysées, but I, I would be disappointed if something else doesn't emerge on the scene between now and then. I mean, I'd love to see Clemmy come back, for example, and hopefully she can be ready for Royal Ascot. Um, Lawrence could go to France for the, the, um, the French Oaks. But you'd be surprised if something doesn't go past her at some stage this season. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't really disagree. Hopefully, they will. I guess they'll have to supplement for the coronation stakes, mm. and that would make a. I mean, that would be the logical thing to do uh, if they can allocate some of that prize money going forward. But it's usually when you see one win at that kind of a price, the next time out, uh, very often you'll see. I guess you could call it regression to the mean. But who knows? I mean, I'll say this: if that's her real level of ability, she's going to have some some leading claims heading into that race. Yeah, not entered in the Irish Guineas either. And as you said, not for Royal Ascot, but they, they'll have to have a tilt at it. And look, if she does have, if that's genuinely, if she can improve on that, wow, um, she could be exciting. But I just, until I see it again, I'll find it hard to believe. Lawrence is a really admirable racehorse and clearly very classy as well. Um, 10 furlongs and the Prix de Diane for her next. Yeah, she ran extremely well. Uh, and uh, I was surprised. It seems like maybe because of the price of the winner, it seemed like there were some uh, connection excuses almost about the run, but it, it looked like a good run that should mm. set her up very nicely for that target and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. A fine filly for Carl Burke and a lot to be excited about there. Uh, Happily was the market leader for Aidan O'Brien and, and did best of, of his runners. Um, she was obviously very unlucky in the Breeders' Cup. Uh, she'd only raced once on this kind of a surface last year. What did you make of her performance? I thought she ran really well. Um, and I liked the race. I liked late on when she almost starts like staying on again late. Sometimes you'll see them do that. And it's a sign of a horse that's really figured it out or ready to take another move forward. Wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what we see from Happily. Yeah, no, she's going to be a very, very interesting one going forward. Right, let's go to Churchill. And the Kentucky Derby, I did ask you beforehand, is it worth having a discussion about the Kentucky Oaks? To which you responded, no, so let's get straight <laughs> on. A little, well, it's a little unfair to Monomoy girl. She was really impressive. She's a great story and a very cool filly. But I think for the, for the, for the audience of the show, I, I, this isn't one who's going to come and uh, be taken on the boys anytime soon or anything like that. It, it, definitely worth reading about, but we could probably have – uh, more fun unpacking this derby because there was a, a lot of story here. Yeah, big time. Uh, I'm going to after time for you. 
because I know you, you'd be too humble to do it. You did put up Justify. Your idea, your angle into this race was very much Mendelssohn, but it was Mendelssohn to couple with Justify. And if you could take that pill of, was it five to two? Um, in around five to two, go for that. You, you were spot on about how the prices would develop as well and the paramutual. Take the five to one about Justify uh, on, the, on the Irish and English and, and UK side of things uh, because he wouldn't be that price over there. And um, you were spot on. He set the trends boys a real, a real uh, pounding because it's the first horse since 18 dickety four uh, to come out and, and win the Kentucky Derby being an unraced juvenile. Um, he is genuinely an exciting horse. I was, I was really annoyed and very disappointed that Mr. Burger King wasn't standing <laughs> beside Bob Baffert uh, to celebrate as he, as he stands inside wearing his kimono. Uh, I, was, I was pretty annoyed that he <laughs> didn't have Burger King beside him. But Wait, maybe the Belmont. He may make his reappearance at the Belmont. Oh, like with the, I'd love it. I would ago. love it. But he, he was talking about American Pharaoh uh, in, in regards to the source. And he was saying just how special he is. And like, it, it wasn't the prettiest of sights. Like, it became a slop. And can I first of all ask you, because you've obviously raced over here a lot and you watch Irish English racing, Irish and UK racing, I should say, an awful lot. Um, there was never any doubt that that race could be abandoned there was never any doubt that that they weren't going to run um when it gets sloppy like that for us it's not a pretty sight but in america that is just something that you have to deal with um from time to time hopefully not all the time but from time to time you are going to be faced with that. i remember breeders cup classic actually curlin's breeders cup classic which uh, we tragically lost george washington in was was a real slop um Every now and again, that's just what you're going to be presented with. Uh, it's it's not very comfortable viewing. No, it's it's not it's not what you uh, you dream about when you dream about uh, going to the Kentucky Derby and the 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 Aiden O'Brien quotes were absolutely priceless. So I don't know if you read any of those about mm. the people dressed in plastic bags and whatnot. But the what it comes down to for us is a, a safety a safety issue and as long as it's deemed safe for the horses to compete if there's not lightning in the area if it's not buckets of water to the point where they're standing water on the track and churchill downs track is it's well designed to handle moisture so it's it's uglier than it is it's way uglier than it is dangerous mm. uh, i think it's safe to say um they they know plenty of rain in that part of the country they know how to get a surface that uh that the horses are going to be able to compete safely on. And it wasn't so much rain that the turf course became slick to where they needed to take the races off day in, day out. That's the advantage that we'll have at a lot of our courses here. If the, if the turf course is either dangerous or just in danger of getting itself chopped up to the point where they couldn't race on it for weeks, they'll move the races to the, to the main track for that reason. But yeah, abandonments are, are few and far between. I can recall, uh, one day, one I think we've missed two days at Saratoga in about the last 10 years. One, because it was about 105 degrees, uh, in, which is what? In the low 30s for, for, for Celsius, right? And mm. then we had a, a hurricane. They, they won't run in the hurricane. They won't run in the, in the lightning. Well, that's good to hear. Like that. That's, yeah. that's there was good never to hear. Never any doubt they were going to be competing uh, there. It did, did cause me to scale back some wagers. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing 
where there, there does become some guesswork. I've originally been thinking about trifectas and trying to find ways to maximize those opinions. And I decided there was just too much chaos to bother in that direction. But yeah, racing goes on as planned. So I really enjoyed NBC's coverage. And I, I genuinely mean that. I was watching ATR and they simulcast the, the, the full NBC coverage. Mike Tirico would be well known to NFL fans as being the, the lead play-by-play guy for ESPN. Uh, he left to join NBC, I think about a year, two years ago. Um, and when you see a big name sportscaster like him anchoring the coverage uh, and the amount, the team that they throw at it, it's, it's really impressive coverage, to be fair. Uh, and they dealt with the, the awful conditions quite well, too. I like the fact that the, the winning jockey, that big money Mike, is, is uh, met by uh, a lovely woman who's out on horseback as well. So he's being interviewed on horseback straight away. I, I love that American feature. Uh, but one of the things that I, I thought was was interesting was as they were going around, they asked every member of their team, including the fashion team, who are you backing? Uh, one vote for Mendelssohn, and it was from a guy wearing a crown doing the fashion. That was odd, I have to say. Have, seeing a, a guy doing the fashion wearing a crown is slightly odd. Um, maybe was that he's... Was weird? Maybe, that the, the, the skater? Uh, they, I like Tara and Johnny. You'll see they get they get heaps of abuse on... on horse racing Twitter. And I, 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 I kind of like the, I like the energy they bring. And I, I like when they have uh, mainstream people coming at the game from a, from, from a bit of a different way. But yeah, Johnny has, you know, some of his fashion choices make mine the other day look very tame. <laughs> no, let me, let me clarify. I do like that. I think there's a time and a place for it, but if it's done well, then I have no problem with fashion. And to be fair, they do it very well. Uh, I could say the exact same thing about, and I'm obviously biased, but I could say the exact same thing about Charlotte Hawkins uh, at ITV. I think that it's just it's handled really well when you, when you have the right people to do it. But the energy certainly I, I liked. I just him wearing a crown was just making me go, huh? Uh, anyway, he voted for Mendelssohn, so he gets my respect, uh, <laughs> ev- even if we did get duffed in the end. But when they got to the handicapper, so the the main tipster for NBC, he was talking about box exactors and trifectas just like you were uh, with us on friday's podcast and that so i kind of want to delve into this very very briefly that's very much an american thing to be going for the the reverse forecast as we call it here um the box exacta the exacta the trifecta is that mentality there just because it's been there for so long is it a mentality because most of the bets that you're placing are at the window, and so you're you're at the mercy of the pari mutual, and and how the tow prices can differentiate. You're not taking fixed odds betting. Um, why are exotic bets so attractive in America? Because it would be very very rare for a pundit to be suggesting, and I'm going to go for the forecast here or the exact. Every now and again, we do, uh, but it's very prevalent in America. I think the, what you mentioned about the lack of fixed odds betting is part of it. I think that creates a, a cultural change in horse players and the way we approach the game. The other issue is how high our takeout is here. Uh, takeout's also high in exotics, but in terms of risk-reward, it still can be a lot more appealing. But I think when you grow up and you start playing horses and – it doesn't take many times of betting a horse you think is going to be three to one that goes off at eight to five to mm. make you not want to do that ever again. And I think as a result, the way 
to find value in USA races much more typically is going to come in the exotic pools where those prices can change, but they're typically not going to change as drastically as a percentage of the play that you're making. And you have opportunities to combine positive opinions on horses with negative opinions on horses where you can essentially eliminate part of the takeout by just saying, okay, here's this six to one shot. Uh, my boy, Jack, for example, a horse that was just crazily overbet. Mm. You can say, Hey, by taking him and playing him uh, out of this exacta, I have a chance to turn the odds back into my favor. And I think you don't need to do that in the UK and Ireland. To me, you can find plenty of value, whether you're talking about bookie prices or an exchange. But if all you had was the tote, <laughs> I think you'd have a very different culture there as yeah. well, where you have to get more creative and find views into a race where you can increase the reward part of the equation to make the risk worth it, if that makes any sense. That, that absolutely does. And I just thought it was an interesting thing to bring about because, like I said, with the exception of play spots, exactors and, and straight forecasts aren't exactly something that we play. I do them because uh, I'm a sucker. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I did reverse forecasts on both the Kentucky Derby and the 2000 and 1000 guineas, and they did not come off. Uh, let's deal with Justify. He's beautifully bred. Um, the dam sire was Ghost Sapper. Uh, he's by the late great Scat Daddy, and he looks a very, very exciting prospect for, for Bob Baffett and for Big Money Mike. Um, there wasn't a speck of muck on him. He was just perfectly positioned uh he led from took it up from about four furlongs out and once he did he never looked in doubt yeah, he was he was fantastic uh, looking at the clock it's hard to know if you just look at the raw fractions that he ran race was unbelievably fast early and then not surprisingly uh slow late with i think so much of the field being gutted between the searching pace and the and the track conditions. It is possible that that track had been sealed for a long time, and it's possible that it was playing faster than one would expect, thus allowing those numbers. When I saw the half on the clock, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, something is going to come from last here to win it at 60 to one. The race is going to fall apart completely. The way that the race held together pretty decently in a way that suggests that maybe the clock, the raw fractions are exaggerating how fast it was, but nonetheless, he put, he did what he had to do. I mean, it was the, the story of the race, the story of the two horses we've spent the most time talking about all just comes down to the break and the first five seconds. I mean, if you trade, uh, you trade the trips of justifying Mendelssohn, I'm not saying Mendelssohn was necessarily going to win, but, you know, he loses all chance when the gate opens and number 15 comes over and g gives him a big bump and he loses all position and gets uh, slammed again. Meanwhile, Justify, you, you loved your chances when you saw him get away from there and get that perfect uh, first over position uh, on a speed horse that was never going to be able to find when the real running started and he showed real gameness in the lane. Good magic. Appears like he's going to make a run towards him. Changes leads. Gets home. And from from here, every single one of Baffert's 
Derby winners has come back to win the Preakness. And obviously, once you get those two, um, you got to start thinking about the possibility of another USA Triple Crown winner. It had been a long time between drinks before the Pharaoh got it done in 15. This horse has a serious chance to, to do it in 2018. Yeah, big time. Um, I was just going to say, you would be extremely disappointed if he got beaten at Pimlico. Absolutely. It doesn't seem like many of the rivals are going to be coming back. Uh, certainly not the serious contenders. Good Magic will be the interesting one to see what Chad Brown decides to do with him if his competitive fire gets him going and he wants to go in the Preakness or if he wants to take a look at the tremendous results horses have had running in the Derby, skipping the Preakness and coming back in five weeks time in the Belmont. I think cooler heads will probably prevail and that's what will happen with good magic. There is a decent horse in Quip who will be coming back to run fresh in the Preakness, but he's not supposed to be able to, to hang with the likes of justify. He's going to be, an overwhelming favorite. Um, and, you know, I just think we want to pay very close attention to how Justify is doing and looking in his, uh, in, in, he won't have a proper work, but just in his galloping on the track. When Baffert did the whole dog and pony show thing where he took him out to show off to the press the day after, he was noticeably off behind. I, I'm, I'm not a horseman and I could see it. Um, I, you know, I suppose that can be forgiven after such a huge race, and it wouldn't give me any worries about the, his long-term prospects, but it, it just gives a little bit of pause. Um, from of, I wouldn't jump and take whatever the Triple Crown price is, whatever the Preakness price is now. I would want to wait and see uh, him come back into himself and look like you, you talk about the NFL before. You can imagine what a running back looks like the morning after. They're, they're probably Ooh. not moving around swiftly and then yeah. by by sunday they're fine it could be that or it could be something but i would just advise caution uh about about leaping on future prices for justify until we get a little bit more of a line on how he bounces back from what was a very big effort in the derby yeah that was something that you and i were talking about off air as well that just how strangely he was moving the next day uh, i'm sure bob baffert uh bob who who famously described officer as a superstar um <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't be risking anything but he is yeah. unbeaten he's a scat daddy he's obviously hugely exciting pimlico will will see him to best effect you'd imagine that five-week gap though is interesting I'm, I'm reminded of funny side uh getting the better of empire maker in the kentucky derby uh much to the surprise of of the late great bobby frankel only for empire maker to then turn things around in the belmont and and beat him um he beat him well that day and the crowd booed i i remember the the new york crowd booing and there were taxi cabs that had uh signs on them saying east side west side we're all going for funny side because he was the first one going for the triple crown in so long and, and new york yeah and, and and a new yorker and um I remember uh, Jerry Bailey having to look at the crowd and go, "Hey, hey, look, you know, he's won. Give him a bit of, give him a bit of credit." And the crowd were still booing. Uh, like, to be fair, the U.S. crowds are fantastic. Um, we talk about getting, and, and we've got a very passionate fan base in Ireland and a very passionate fan base for both codes of racing in the U.K. and in Ireland. But 
you got almost 160,000 people to Churchill Downs on a miserable, miserable day. And at a time where, and, and Johnny Ward was tweeting pictures of some of the, the newspapers. Um, yes, there are still newspapers. And uh, just how much coverage Aidan O'Brien was getting and, and Bob Baffert and, and the Derby itself. It's great to see that this sport that we love is given such extensive coverage by a huge broadcaster in NBC, um, but also attracts such a great crowd as well, because that can only be a positive sign for our sport. It's, it's wonderful to have racing matter uh, the way it does on the big days here. I mean, the U.S. <laughs> mugs, my, my Labrador agrees. She, she really loves the mainstream television sport. The, uh, it's a great thing to be able to uh, feel like everybody. We we sometimes feel like we're just this uh, like a subculture of a subculture almost. Sports fans being the first subculture, and then racing being a, a subculture of that. When you get um, everybody will see you uh, whether you're at the party and everybody wants to know what you think or has an opinion or has questions or they hear you work in racing and instead of sort of shrugging they say, "Oh, that's really cool. Who do you like in the Derby?" The immediate ability to connect and uh, and talk about the game that we love, it's uh, it's fantastic. And I agree, NBC do a terrific job uh, bringing it to a lot of people. I always try to tape that coverage and go back and, and watch and see the way that they approach it. And there are times, uh, race meets like Keeneland and Saratoga and Del Mar and big days at Santa Anita – put it this way, uh, the death of racing in the United States has been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good thing to say as well. Mendelssohn, it was great to hear Aidan O'Brien talking about having never experienced an atmosphere like the Kentucky Derby and and say some really nice things about it because he must have been desperately disappointed. The race was over at the start. He got absolutely slammed uh, by Magnum Moon. Uh, we were t- Somebody was, was tweeting me saying, you know, would Luis... Is it Luis Saez? Saez. Saez. Would he get banned for dangerous riding in, in the UK or Ireland? 21-day ban, son. Out. You're, you're gone. Uh, it was almost like a deliberate maneuver. I know it wasn't, but it looked like it. Um, and, and that Mendelssohn got bumped three times and then got involved in what looked like go-karting uh, when he yep. went around the, the first turn as well. It was really messy. And he actually did well to get himself into the position that he was in. But he'd used up so much energy and was then racing on that slot that that was it. It was game over. Um, and I think Brian very sensibly took care of the horse. He's not, yeah. he's not ready to get – he probably could have ridden him to get eighth or whatever. But he, he knows there's going to be another day. And he knows what this horse means to that operation, not only for the rest of this year, but with his future uh, at, at stud as well. And I'm, I'm very annoyed. There was a lot of gloating – all American, but gloating racing fans on, on Twitter, you know, oh, see, I told you, well, what do you, you ran, your, your, your super horse ran last, all this nonsense. And it's like, to me, you just can't even begin to judge that horse's ability based on, on that race. And I made that point, and then I had them coming at me saying, oh, well, what about all these horses uh, shared belief the other year when he got hit by Bayern and he still comes running? Look, just because some horses have a running style where they can be buried and make impressive runs doesn't mean that a horse with Mendelssohn style, who to me needed to be out and in the clear, yeah. this is not an experienced horse running on dirt. His one dirt start, I'd venture to say he learned 
very little just by going to the lead and and not really he showed he could run on dirt but he didn't show the ability to deal with that kind of adversity just had no chance draw a line through it i like the plan the stated plan from aiden o'brien is possibly coming back here to prep for the classic i think that would be very wise i don't know if he's looked at a racing calendar what races he'd have in mind but i mean to me uh if, i don't know if you're if he's going to look to do a one or two run campaign but possibly as early as a race like the woodward uh possibly something a little bit later on in, in early fall run him once or twice and uh get a little bit more seasoning a little bit more experience but this his experiences, those things didn't hurt him on the day. What hurt him on the day was getting annihilated at the break. And you can really just draw a line through it from there. Yeah, it was a bad day at the office. Draw a line through it. And the good news is that we'll get a bigger price for him the next time he runs. And he's come back safe and sound. Are you a little bit surprised that he's not going to go for the Belmont? Because I am. It is interesting. But I think it's just a question of uh, long-term value and what the goals are. We talked about, the, he's already, his two big wins are not stallion making races, right? Mm. The Breeders' Cup turf, uh, Breeders' Cup juvenile turf and the UAE Derby have never made a stallion. So, and the Belmont alone, the Belmont without other things on the resume does not make a stallion. Mm. The Breeders' Cup classic makes a stallion. Yeah. So I think he's just decided to circle that race on the calendar and work back from it. And I think given, I think he'd have a fair chance in the Belmont um, but I think that it's just not what the it's just not what the plan is for this horse. There's also a long way to go between now and then, and we've seen. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but we've seen um, dirt racing take an awful lot out of these three year olds, and a horse like Justify ends up getting injured and missing the classic. So there's an awful long way to go before we get there. Um, if he did a declaration of war and finished second, he would be immediately invaluable for Coolmore. But if he went and won the Breeders' Cup Classic, it, it really would be quite some story. So um, I, I honestly thought he would go for the Belmont. So uh, I, I think it's interesting um, that the idea is bring him back to the States, give him a prep run, maybe two, as you said, uh, and then it's all roads to the Breeders' Cup Classic, which I think he's 33-1 to 1 for. And I would make a pretty solid case to be taking that because if he doesn't That's get the slop... Yeah, I think that could be very, very interesting. Um, we saw Defoe come out and win the, the Jockey Club Stakes. I believe the Coronation Stakes is, is next up for him at Newmarket. Uh, it took him a while to, to wind up, but once he did, he was really quite impressive. And another Breeders' Cup winner, Wahida, uh, was back in action uh, in the Dahlia Stakes. Um, her trainer, Charlie Appleby, who's been in, in tremendous form, was talking about the fact that she would definitely come forward for the race. Um I'm sure that that's exactly what she'll do. Uh, there is a chance that she may very well be heading back to the States as well. Um, so we'll, we will see what she gets up to very, very soon too. Um, that is our review of the weekend's racing in the company of uh, Peter T. Fornatal. Uh, in terms of what we saw, what is your, your biggest highlight? Is it Justify, Saxon Warrior, or Bilsden Brook? Oh, I've got to go with Justify, but that's, you know, that this race for me and the, the podcast that I do, there's just so much of an emphasis on the Derby that, uh, that, that, that there was really never any other, uh, any 
any other choice for me as as interesting a result as the 1,000 was and as impressive and great a story uh, Saxon is. I, I got to go team justify. Before we get out of here, Emmett, I do want to throw one a potential future betting idea out from the Derby. Um, and it's funny because you mentioned Empire Maker and it's a horse uh, – it's a horse who has the same colors talking about uh, talking about Hofburg as one who, who seems to have that profile that we've seen so many times of a horse that sort of runs a sneaky good derby and then comes back and really impresses in five weeks time in New York. I don't know how many bookies will have priced that up yet, but it's something to just keep an eye out for because I could see, especially in books, the kind of horse that might be a wise guy horse come the tote on the day, but a few weeks out with a future book, uh, with, with a bookie, you might be able to catch somebody out a little bit and get, get some real good value there. Yeah, that is a really good shout. So running in the Caleb Abdullah, Caleb Abdullah silks, if I pronounced it correctly, of uh, famous of Frankel and Empire Maker fame. Uh, the horse's name again? Hofburg. Hofburg. And just very briefly, because I know you're about to go and record your own podcast, uh, the Daily Racing Forum podcast, which is entitled... The ERF Players Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your uh, podcast. Or I usually post links. You can follow me on Twitter at Looms Boldly. And he does indeed Looms Boldly, uh, particularly when it's in the pub and he's buying the next round. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Peter's an absolute gentleman and an absolute legend. Looking forward to meeting up with you again at Royal Ascot. But just, I know you've got a deadline to go to uh, record your next podcast. So b before you do, there was a lot of talk about the sloppy surface. The Americans experimented with a synthetic track. Dubai experimented with a synthetic track. And both ripped them up and went, no, this is, this is not working. Dubai obviously did it to suit America. And from the American racing perspective, the, the thing that was in my head when synthetics were brought out, first of all, was, well, this is great and all, but you spent generations breeding horses for the dirt how are you now going to tear up those bloodlines and start again like that doesn't make sense and it's not really fair on stallion farms who've got sons and granddaughters and grandsons of stormcat who have been bred for this and now suddenly it's a synthetic track they're running on is the dirt very much here to stay i think so uh, the synthetic experiment was a debacle um coming and going in my opinion i mm. i think it was brought in too quickly and then gotten rid of too quickly. There's still a little synthetic here, but I think there would have been some great benefits to it if it had been done in a smarter way. It was done in a very haphazard way. Some of the formulas for the tracks, um, not what they were supposed to even be because of environmental issues in California, say, and they, they just ended up with one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock. And, you know, when that happens, very often you end up in the water that was the situation here, and it was—it's it, just too bad because I do think they have benefits, and I didn't hate them the way a lot of horse players hated them. Mm -hmm. But it, it just was a—it just wasn't done right, and then uh, and then rushed out way too quickly. Dirt is what we've always had, um, despite the rise in the quality. I think in recent years of our turf racing. Dirt racing is, is you know, I, I, I expect them to be running on dirt in, in hundreds of years. Yeah, it's, it's the be-all and end-all, really. And look, they do it in Japan. They do it in Dubai. It's the way it is. 
and uh, just accepted that that is the jurisdiction and how it's done. Peter, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you again. And, uh, and great to get your insight. The, interna the international, even, dear God, I'm finding it difficult to pronounce things. I need to use my mouth words better. Uh, but it's great to get your, your perspective on the 2000 and 1000 guineas. I thought it was a fantastic weekend's racing. I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, Kentucky Derby, even though it wasn't the most pleasant of viewing from the slot. But when you see a horse like Justify go and do what he did, and me doing my brains on Mendelssohn, and still <laughs> being able to cheer on, Bob Baffert's superstar. Uh, I, it's, it's great to catch up with you again. Uh, looking forward to having you back on the show in our prep for Royal Ascot because we're going to have a big American team coming over. Oh, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to all the storylines that, uh, that are going to converge. And I'm telling you, you got to listen to your own show. You needed to take that saver with the bookies on Justify, man. I tried to help you. You did, but I was tied in too much to Mendelssohn. It was heart overhead, and if I just followed you in, ah, I'd have made a bit of a profit. Um, Peter is off to record his own podcast. Uh, the name of it again? DRF Players Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, follow on SoundCloud as well. It really is top listening. Uh, Peter T. Fonatel, my good friend, thank you so much for joining us. We'll chat to you again very, very soon. Cheers, my man. And that is Peter. Thank you so much again to him for joining us. And thank you so much for the kind words on social media as well over the last few days. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the last few podcasts that we've done. Kevin Blake remains on assignment, but will be back very, very soon. He'll be on your screens on ITV uh, during Chester. He's on for one of the days. So keep an eye out for him. Uh, both of us are back on ITV for Epsom, for the Oaks and for the Derby and for Royal Ascot as well. And uh, thank you for the kind words on social media about that too. Uh, we are back with a brand new Final Frontal podcast on Thursday. We will chat to you then. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. God bless. Have you downloaded the free app, The Races app yet? With easy to use race cards and form, Expert daily tips plus video replays and in-app betting is the app that no racing fan's phone should be without. Available for free on your iPhone or Android mobile, visit attheracescom forward slash app for more details.